Okay, so dream scenario, James. We've uh, had a hopefully bloodless revolution and you're our new chancellor. Is that is that a thing? Is that going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and I'm here with James Meadway, who's a senior economist at the New Economics Foundation for the weekly economics podcast. Exciting times, everyone. George Osborne's doing a budget next week, which means James has got his crystal ball out and he's going to be talking about what might and what might not be in the budget. It's full steam ahead for the 2015 Election Express. When this government took office in 2010, the public finances were in an ambulance heading for intensive care. Now, they have been mended a bit since then. Indeed, quite the opposite. What they show is Britain is growing, incomes are rising, the richest have made the biggest contribution, the inequality has fallen. And I think people listening to this show know that Britain is fundamentally in a better position than it was five years ago. But... So, James, you're an economist, not a mind reader, but uh, what's going to be in George Osborne's budget next week? Well, I think what he's going to do is talk up as much as possible some of the uh, relatively good news that the government's had over the last sort of few months, which would be the economy's growing, it's growing faster than most other similar economies in the world, uh, unemployment's down, real wages finally on uh, the usual measure are finally rising. So all of this will be talked up, like everything's going really well, we got it right, Labour got it wrong, uh, you should stick with us, that's going to be the message. That all sounds pretty good, though. So what's wrong with that? Well, there's a couple of issues. In fact, there's several issues with all of this. Um, the first one is that, look, in terms of let's take real wages, the, the reason that most people's uh, money is going a bit further than it used to, that's what a real wage means, it's your money after you take account of prices, is that inflation has been very, very low. And inflation has been very, very low because oil prices have basically fallen through the floor. This has got nothing whatsoever to do with George Osborne. So that kind of boosts to people's uh, income has come about not because of government policy at all. That's one part of it. The other parts of it is if you start to dig into what's happening with growth, it's been quite striking over the last probably two years now, really, that you've seen this really sharp drop in people's savings. After they started saving more and more during the recession, this is one of the drivers of the recession, uh, they've started eating into their savings. They've started borrowing more and more. Borrowing outside of mortgages has been rising by about around about a billion pounds a month for the last uh, year, two years or so. So that's all going on at the same time as you've seen this big rise in consumer spending because people are basically borrowing and eating to their savings and starting to spend. That's what's driving growth. So this starts to look very much like what we saw in the run-up to the crash last time round. A lot of the big problems that were there really haven't gone away. We've done absolutely nothing about them and we're going straight back down the same kind of path. Okay, so one of your kind of grand ideas uh, to solve all of this is about government investment um, and presuming that we'd have to borrow to do that. Why are you so against the debt-led growth that we've got at the moment? The problem you've got is that what you're seeing with debt is something similar to what you're seeing with wealth, but in the other direction. The figures we now have show that wealth is increasingly going towards the people who are already wealthy. So it's concentrating more and more in the hands of the wealthy, and it's concentrating less and less in the hands of people who already don't have very much wealth. Debt, on the other hand, is moving in the opposite direction. So if you're at the bottom end of the income distribution, you've been squeezed hard over the last few years. I mean, everybody's been squeezed, but you've been squeezed hard if you're, if you're you know, 
having to rely on benefits, that sort of thing. So you're depending more and more on debt. Now, that's a real problem because if you are not actually earning very much, but you're taking on more debt, your earnings have to pay for this debt. If you don't have any earnings and you've got lots of debt, that's a problem. So you can start to see some of the real issues that are developing under the surface here, I think. Okay, and and George Osborne and others in the government have been um, doing the rounds, talking about how they've they've cut inequality and how that the wealthy are paying more towards the deficit than anybody else. Is he wrong about that? Well, yeah, you have to be. I think we need to be clear about there's there's two kinds of inequality that we could really usefully talk about here. There's the inequality of income. So how much are people getting paid, and how is this di- distributed across the population? How much are the richest people getting paid? It's top ten percent, top one percent. How much are the poorest people? Poor is 50%, poor is 10% getting paid. So that's your income. The other way of looking at inequality is inequality of wealth, uh, which is how much do you own? How much do the richest uh, in the country own? How much do the poorest in the country own? And that's another way of looking at uh, inequality. These two things are different. You know, one is a flow of income over time. The other is your stock of assets. In practice, probably the more important one over a long period of time is wealth rather than income. Because if you have wealth, if you have lots of wealth, you can always use this to generate an income. If you own a castle, you know, there's lots of ways that you can start to just turn this into money if you really have to. There's lots of ways even you can just have it earn money for you. You can run it as a visitor centre or whatever it might be. More useful if you own shares in a company, you know, which have been going through the roof over the last year or so, then you're becoming rich because those shares are becoming worth more and more, that you're becoming rich because perhaps the company is also paying big dividends to you. So the wealth is more important over time. What you see happening with these two kinds of inequality is that the pattern on income inequality has been quite complicated, more complicated, in that you saw in the recession a squeeze on everybody's income and perhaps some reduction in inequality because it was often people who were quite wealthy being hit during that. And then as the uh, recession ends and as you start to get into the last few years, I think inequality in income has started to increase again. Wealth inequality, on the other hand, it's a much simpler story. There's been a simple concentration of more and more wealth right at the top of the population. Okay. And the the final thing that you you point to um, as being... uh well, why this recovery might be built on shaky foundations is the, uh, the issue with international financial flows. Now, I mean, we always hear that London is the financial capital of the world and we want it to stay that way. So what's wrong with this kind of international cash flow? Well, the, the problem there, firstly, with the, the London being such a big financial centre, is that this costs us money. You know, this is something that has been a huge drain on resources uh, of everybody else in the country uh, over the last few years, because you basically have to do a sort of cost-benefit in this one. On the one hand, the City of London, financial services in general, paid over the boom of the 2000s about £196 billion in tax. Yeah, it's pretty substantial. It's a lot of money. But to bail them out has an immediate cost in 2008, 2009, of about £290 pounds. A total cost, the total amount of support offered is about £1.2 trillion. So there's a really substantial cost to having a large financial centre sitting in the middle of your economy. It, when it trips up, it's expensive for everyone. So this idea that it simply makes us all money and generates jobs and all the rest of it doesn't really apply. That's one part of it. The second part of it is that when you have, like we've had for decades in this country, um, when you're trying to buy more things from the rest of the world than you're selling to the rest of the world, 
you kind of have to get the money from somewhere to make good the difference. This is the trade deficit. And what we've been doing is selling stuff off to the rest of the world, selling off assets. So sold, you know, the share in Eurostar that the government still owns, sold to a Canadian company last week. Uh, and we've been borrowing from the rest of the world. Now, the trouble with doing this is that eventually you run out of stuff to sell. And eventually you've borrowed so much, it costs you a fortune to pay for all this debt. And you're paying that to the rest of the world. So this is, again, it's one of those that long-term problems that's sitting there that hasn't got resolved and is getting worse and worse and worse. And why doesn't George Osborne see this kind of stuff? Well, the, the, I think they probably do see this sort of stuff. I think they can sit in the Treasury and you do see some of it. It's a question of priorities and a question of what is or seems to be politically feasible or politically useful. That if you're sitting there, the path of least resistance is always to do basically what you've always done. And if you can just about get that to work, and what they're doing at the minute is getting this kind of debt-led growth, this service industry, this consumer spending version of how the economy operates. Uh, if you can get that to work, and if you can get that to work in particular, if people are going to vote for you or are close to your uh, political party, then this is all fine. And you don't really have an incentive to change. To change this, to deal with long-term problems, structural problems, actually requires a lot of effort and a lot of political will to do it. So there's no incentive. Even if you know all of this, you just think, well, it doesn't look too bad. I can go into the election now saying GDP's up, real wages finally uh, gone up, unemployment down. What are you complaining about? Okay, so dream scenario, James. We've we've uh, got our own Podemos party, and uh, we've uh, had a hopefully bloodless revolution. And you're our new chancellor. Tell us what are the three things that you would put together uh, for a budget next week. Well, if, if such a thing can be imagined, well, look, the obvious one is to say, look, let's just not do austerity. The social costs of this are very substantial. It has an economic cost in the sense that this is one of the contributing factors to why people's pay has not been rising. Most people's pay has not been rising for the last few years. So you say we're going to end the austerity programme. We're going to have a programme of spending on uh, public services and we are going to look to invest in uh, renewable energy and transport infrastructure, public transport, all these things that will create jobs and, and create lots of uh, activity in the rest of the economy, that we will also, I think, look to push up the uh, minimum wage to, so let's say, the living wage level nationally. Studies suggest that you probably create another 40,000 jobs from doing that. Because basically, people have got more money, so they go out and spend. It creates more jobs, so that's all good there. And then to start to pay for this and to deal with the issue of inequality and the fact that the rich are just getting richer and richer, you could, start, you could really make a start on something like getting serious about tax avoidance. You you know, estimates on this vary how much you get in. Pretty easily you could bring in 25 to £50 billion without that much effort. It would require some effort, but you can start to be serious about saying we're not going to run this country as a kind of tax haven on the sly anymore. And there's any number of measures you could start to introduce there. OK, so uh, on to the uh, jargon of the week. James, can you explain the difference between the trade deficit and the current account deficit, please? Yeah, OK. The, the trade deficit is basically the difference between um, what we buy uh, from the rest of the world and what we sell to the rest of the world. So this can either be goods or services, and usually you put the two together. And if you are buying more from the rest of the world than you're selling to the rest of the world, you have a trade deficit. So there is a gap between these two things. The current account deficit is that plus how much you earn from the rest of the world uh, and how much you have to send out to the rest of the world. So if people own stuff here, 
they've bought Eurostar or they've bought some company or whatever it might be, uh, they get income from that. You have to send it to them somewhere else in the world. Or if you've borrowed money off them, and Britain's external debt is one of the highest anywhere on the planet, it's about 400% of GDP. So if you've borrowed money off people elsewhere in the world, you have to send the interest payments to the rest of the world. So the current account is the trade deficit, the gap between what you buy and sell in goods and services, plus this difference in uh, income going to and from the rest of the world. Okie doke. Well, um, thank you very much, James, for um, chatting to us this afternoon. I'm going to head straight home now to turn my East London castle into a uh, tourist attraction. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you have any questions about economics for James, then please get in touch with me at KirstyStyles1 on Twitter. Due to popular demand, uh, the weekly economics podcast is now on iTunes. You can subscribe now, uh, tell your friends uh, and listen on your commute. And if you think it's dead good, leave us a review. We'll be back at the same time next week. There is another petition. Have you seen it? To get Julian Clary to be the new presenter of Top Gear. Oh, is that a petition as well? Yeah, that is a petition. Uh, I think we should sign that. Definitely. <laughs>